been doing as a church, we've been doing a series called Whatever It Takes. And the premise of that series has been that Jesus Christ did whatever it took to reach us. In fact, God the Father gave his son, for God so loved the world, he gave his son Jesus Christ, his only son, Jesus, so that we could have everlasting life. That wasn't just a passing statement. That was a big deal. He did whatever it took to reach us. And Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, there was nothing desirable about us, he died for our sins. So he did whatever it took to reach us. And then he sends us out on mission. And we've seen that that mission is not fellowship, it's not praise, it's not teaching, it's not any of those things. That the mission is to seek and save that which is lost. And we're to continue his ministry of doing that very thing. And so the question for us as his followers is, will we do whatever it takes to fulfill that mission? Will we do whatever it takes to introduce people that have yet to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, yet to experience the life change that we've experienced so that they can come to know Jesus the way that we do? And that's what the series has been about. And today we're going to do the, the next part in this series as we talk about it taking participation. It takes us playing a role in that story. And we all have a role. We all have a part that we play in that story. And if you've been with us, you know that for about a month, we've been uh, talking about my family and I have been talking about something that I introduced as a controversial statement. The fact that uh, we're opening up our recruitment to a local sports team and uh, we wanted our, our hearts to really go with the team. We, we kind of picked one when we got here, but our hearts weren't really in it. So we reopened our recruitment. I've learned a lot about our church <laughs> in this process. I've learned a lot about many of you individually, <laughs> and that can be good or bad, about this process of, of recruitment. I found out there are teams represented that I didn't realize that people were so passionate about. I've been told that I should be talking about the pirates, the purple and gold folks that are out there. And so, yeah, boo, there's booing. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Y'all work that out amongst yourselves. Uh, there, there's, I found out last week, I was surprised at how many Duke fans there are in our church. I said something about Duke. People got all riled up and go Duke and deep voices and high voices of men and women, I assume. Everybody's like, did you see they won a football game yesterday? <laughs> Talk about crazy stuff. But anyway, there's, Duke did something and uh, that's great. We've got, I thought that the whole decision was going to come down to the powder blue UNC people or the red NC State people. And, you know, there's just statements out there about whether or not I would decide because the sky, God painted the sky for a certain reason. Or, or maybe I'd decide those people are trying to steal God's glory and then it's all covered under the blood. Whatever the deal was. There was some decision that came down to that stuff. And there are a lot of spiritual analogies that go with picking a team, aren't there? Every analogy breaks down eventually. Have you thought about some of the analogies that we've used? Uh, the first week that I talked about this, I said that we naturally talk about what we love. And you have more than proven that you naturally talk about your teams. You love talking about your teams because you love your team. And the question was, do we naturally talk about Jesus? Do we love him? And do we love the people that he loves? And so it shouldn't be an assignment. It should be something we have to do in a task that we check off. But because of the overflow of love in our hearts, we should naturally want to talk about Jesus. And if we don't, then we need to search our hearts and what's going on there. And we talked about, too, about how many times with our teams we'll do crazy stuff, won't we? And you watch the NC State fans, and I've seen kids dressed up in red and white overalls and mullet, you know, wigs on and people doing hand motions. They do all that stuff for their team. And the Cameron crazies, and they'll camp out overnight in their tents. And you've got you know, powder blue people just walking, look like Smurfs painted to go to a UNC game. And people do all this crazy stuff for their team. And we talked about how we'll do crazy things for love. And we asked ourselves the question, will we do whatever it takes for the mission? If we love God and we love people, the two greatest commandments in Scripture, kind of a big deal, if, we'll, if those are true, then will we do crazy stuff for love? Will we do crazy, will we do whatever God asks us to do to reach people for Jesus Christ? But like I said, every analogy breaks down eventually. And it breaks down today and what we're talking about today. Because I know, I realize that at some point I'm going to pick a team. <laughs> I've debated about whether or not I should tell you which team that I pick for the health of our body as a whole. I've had people tell me not to say anything in case I pick the wrong team, according to them. And so all those types of things have been told to me. I understand that, but I know once I pick a team, 
I become part of a community. I'll become part of a community of people, and maybe we'll tailgate together, and we'll have fun together, and we'll do hand motions if it's one team, or we'll camp out in tents if it's another. I don't know if I'm going to paint my body, but maybe go to games and yell cheers and say the right things and wear a jersey or whatever it is for that team, and I become part of that community. But I know this, I will never be part of the team. And that's where our analogy breaks down. And because of my age, because of my lack of athletic ability, I told my wife before the first service, I actually hurt my back this morning. Drying my hands in the bathroom. Okay, so I, I know I'm not making any teams, okay? Regardless of eligibility rules, none of that's relevant. It's not going to happen. So I will not log one minute on a team. I will not score a touchdown, score a basket, make a tackle, block a shot. I won't do any. It doesn't matter what sport it is. It's not happening for me. Now, let me just say this before I go any further. I know what it is to be a fan. I know what it's like. I know when your team wins, you say, we won. And when your team loses, you say, we lost. I get that. But let me just say something. For those of you who are married to someone who's more passionate about a team than you are, try this exercise at your house. Next time someone gets mad because their team loses, okay, they come in, they're, they're ready to fire somebody that they don't even know and have no authority over, right? <laughs> or they're mad at some kid who just graduated from high school like two weeks ago because he dropped a ball, okay? They're, they're ready. They're ticked off. And they say, we lost. Here's what I challenge you to do, spouse. Be sympathetic at first. I'm so sorry that your team lost, honey. Okay, that's nice. That's just kind of put that in there, right? It's just part of the effect. And then you say, I dare you to ask this question. I dare you. How many minutes did you play? How many touchdowns did you score? How, how many blocks did you make? How many tackles? How, what did you do? <laughs> I wore my jersey. That's called superstition, not participation, okay? You weren't in the game. If the answer to any of those questions is zero, you're not on the team. So here's where our analogy breaks down. Is that Jesus doesn't call us just to be his fans. He calls us, invites us into the mission as his followers. We're supposed to participate in what takes place. We actually are on the field doing the mission, living this out. Because of what he's done in our lives, we are part of the team, not just a crowd. Here's the problem. Today, all across America, millions, don't miss that word, millions of people will fill churches. And they will sing the songs, say the cheers. Some of them will dress up in the jerseys, I mean, church clothes. They'll recite the creeds. They'll go through certain motions that will take place that are religious to make them think things about God. They'll study the scriptures. They'll, they'll, they'll do hand motions even. Some of them will do hand motions. They'll wake at us, you know, get us going. And there's fans of Jesus filling churches all across America. And they'll fill up every conference and every Bible study and they'll rally around the causes and they'll cheer for the things they're supposed to be excited about, but they never get in the game. They don't follow Jesus. And Jesus isn't calling fans, he's calling followers. And we talk about whatever it takes. If we're going to do whatever it takes, it takes participation. That's what we're going to see today from John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn your scriptures with me. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, what's taking place there, and I'll start reading in verse 1. So Jesus is at the height of his popularity. In fact, after this miracle, he's probably more popular than he ever is in any time in human history. He's more popular. They want to make him king at this moment. And this is the most popular miracle that's recorded in the scriptures, probably next to the resurrection. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than the resurrection. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And John tells us some of what's taking place at this time. In verse 4, it says that it was when the Passover feast was near. And that doesn't mean a lot to most of us. Most of us aren't Jewish. Certainly uh, didn't understand what the customs were like in that time period. But 
At that time period, when the Passover feast came around, it was required of every Jewish male to go to Jerusalem, so they would travel there, so there'd be more people in this time period, in this city at this time than any other time. And so as they're traveling there, you know what else is happening? This is a big, it's a national holiday, it's a religious holiday, it's much like Christmas for many of us. And you think about what happens at Christmas time is it's kind of nostalgic. You get together with your family. You tell the Christmas story. You tell some of your family stories. There's lots of traditions that go with it. That's what the Passover's like. But the stories that they tell are stories of the Passover from the Old Testament and the book of Exodus. It's the story that took place where the, the death angel passed over the homes of the not killing the firstborn and the Jewish families. And then what was taking place in that time period was that Moses had a special relationship with God and God communicated with him like a friend. And he would do amazing things through Moses like feed them manna from heaven, part the waters after this miracle Jesus walks on water. All this stuff is reflections of that he is the one that Moses was pointing to. But the people at that time, they're talking about, because they're living under Roman oppression, the economy stinks. Taxation is heavier than anything we've ever experienced before. Healthcare, not a good situation. None of that's good. They want a new leader. Now they've got, according to the history books, Rome and peace. Rome accomplished that through murder. It's very interesting. So the people don't actually like it. Rome rules the world. They call the shots, and the people want a new leader. And they're talking about Moses, and they hear about Jesus. Jesus is a guy who seems to have a special relationship with God. God's doing things through Jesus. And these people, they've got problems. They need jobs. They've got heavy taxation. Marriages are falling apart. People are sick. And Jesus could be the answer. And so he has a lot of fans. Look at John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, there's a big gap between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Some people say six months, some people say a year, but a lot of stuff took place. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw miraculous signs, the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. He's telling us, John's telling us the mentality of the people. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd, so twice we've seen that there's a great crowd, there's a multitude, there's a sea of people coming toward him. And he leans over to his buddy Philip and he said, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Not to be satisfied, but to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves. This is poor people food. Little cakes. And two small fish, the size of sardines, hors d'oeuvres. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, the people, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Now Matthew tells us in his account that that number does not include women and children. Most scholars will argue that there's somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 people there. We'll just say 15 today. 15,000 people there that day. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and he distributed them among those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. Now on that day, regardless of what the number is, 10,000, 20,000, 15,000, a lot of people ate. All the people that were there, every one of them, including the disciples, benefited from the miracle that took place that day. Everybody benefited, even the fans. But, read the story. There are a few that actually got to participate in the miracle. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Philip, another one of the disciples, an unnamed boy. 
They all got to be a part of what took place that day. In fact, if you read Mark's account of this, you'll know that all 12 of the disciples were the ones that passed out the bread and the fish. Mark chapter 6, verse 41, for your notes, you can look it up on your own. They all took part in the miracle. The people that participated each had a part in the miracle. And that's the thing. If we're going to participate in the mission that God has for us, it's going to require that each one of us plays a part. And that's our first point. The participation requires that we have a part. And if you think about it, the team analogy again, that everybody has a part on a team, right? If you watched a game yesterday, was NC State, NC State won a game against Maryland, Duke won a game. Uh, There was a coach on the sideline, and the coach had a part of calling plays. And there were trainers, and they had a part, and they had a part of making sure everybody was in in good shape and stretched out and all that stuff. There was a quarterback. There was only one quarterback, though. And there was only one one wide receiver that's supposed to catch the ball on a certain play, and he's run certain routes based on the play, and then there's other people that are supposed to block, and there's specialty positions where somebody kicks, but everybody had a part. Everybody played a part if they participated. And the same is true with the family of God, with his followers. The analogy that Scripture uses is the same but different. It's not a sports analogy, but it's the same exact analogy, that we're the body of Christ. Some are a hand based on your skills and your gifts, your experiences, where God has you in life. Some are feet, some are legs, some are arms, some play different roles in the body. But we all have a part to play. And if we're going to participate in the mission, we all have to play our part. And God's got a specific part for you and a specific part for me. And the worst thing we can do is try and play somebody else's part. I was at dinner with a, a couple that's mentored, Shannon and I. We were both at dinner with them on Tuesday night. They're an older couple from out of state. They planted a church about 35 years ago. And so we've learned from their experiences and them just being further ahead in life and, and some of those things. And so we had dinner on Tuesday night. We talked for hours at a restaurant here in town. And we just we shared stuff that was good that was going on at Southbridge. We talked about our own personal struggles and things that we've gone through over the last couple of years and just what God's teaching them and back and forth. And there was one statement he said in that conversation that really stuck out to me. His name was Bill. And Bill looked at me one time and he said, Satan's greatest tool, he believes, Satan's greatest tool is comparison. So it gets us, our eyes on somebody else and we look at them and what happens is we distort and in some cases destroy the image that God's created us in because we're all uniquely image bearers of God. Psalm 139 says that, that each one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made and we read in the Genesis that we're created in the image of God. So each one of us unique, we uniquely bear the image of God. And what happens when we start looking at other people, here's how it practically works most of the time, is we look at other people, we look at their strengths. We look at what they do well. We look at what they get. We look at how they're praised. And we want all that stuff. We don't think about their dark side. We don't think about all the weaknesses that come along with those strengths. We don't think about that stuff. We just want that. And even if we accomplished all that, or even if it's not a specific person, you just want to be somebody God didn't create you to be, you're at best distorting the image of God in you and perhaps destroying because you're not playing the part that God's created you to play. You see, the scripture teaches us that God's put us in a specific place for a specific reason at a specific time. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, when he's preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he says this, from one man, he's telling them something they know, from one man he made every nation of men. And here's why, that they would inhabit the whole earth. This is a big plan. Okay, this isn't just about Raleigh, it's not just about Mars Hill, this is the whole earth. And he determined and set the times for them, the exact places they would live, and the time that they would live. And so God didn't have a plan for you to live during Jesus' time, or the 50s, or the 20s, or any of that stuff. He wanted you here today, 2012. And this place, and RDU, the exact places, exact 
places, exact zip code, exact address, exact phone number, exactly where you're at is exactly where God placed you. Not somebody else's phone, not somebody else's house, not somebody else's gifts, not somebody else's abilities, yours. That's where he's placed you. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says it this way when he's writing to a group of people. He says, for we are God's workmanship. You could translate that, his work of art, his poema. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror, but what God sees when he looks at you is a work of art. With all your experiences, the good ones and the bad ones, and your gifts, and your flaws, it's in your weaknesses that he's made known. It's in all of that stuff. He created you in Christ Jesus, and there was a reason to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you before the world began, that he put you in this place. It's all part of his plan. But you miss out on his plan if you don't participate. And see, what's happening with the disciples here is they're being invited in to participate. You see, at this time period, in John chapter 6, when you look at the structure of the Gospels, what's happening here is that for two years they left everything, and we call them followers of Jesus. They left to follow Jesus, right? But really they were just fans. They were watching. For the first two years of Jesus' ministry, who does all the work? Jesus. That's the right answer in case you're ever guessing at church. Jesus. Jesus does everything. He's healing people. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's got authority unlike anybody else. He's casting out demons. You know what they're doing? Watching. If somebody puts their hand in, leprosy comes out, no leprosy. Wow. They're just just there, okay? They're not doing anything. And then what happens is, just before this story, just before this miracle takes place, you know what Jesus does? He says, you guys are going to go out two by two into different towns and different villages, and here's your assignment. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8, he says this, I want you to go out and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received, freely give. I've changed your life, now I want you to go out and be used for other people. Huh. Um, can we start with like Sunday school? <laughs> heal the sick? <laughs> I think if I were there that day, I would have raised my hand. Jesus uh, saw that leprosy thing. You did an awesome job, Okay. I didn't get the notes on the lecture, though. What am I supposed to say to heal leprosy? Like, tell me the three steps. Tell me the how-to, the five keys. I didn't get that. And what about the, the casting out demons? Are you kidding me? Like, is there like a seance we're supposed to have, burning candles? Is there incense? What do I do? And do you know what? There's no answer to those questions. As much as we, especially Western thinkers, as much as we like three steps, five keys, and all the how-tos and all that stuff, Jesus doesn't give you that. You know what he tells you to do? Live by faith. By faith, by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's by faith. You walk out, you trust me, and you know in the moment, I'll tell you the words. You're walking with me, my spirit will speak to you, you'll know what to say in the moment, and it might be different for you, Peter, than it is for you, Andrew, than it is for you, Thomas, than it is for you, and even Judas went and cast out demons. And he went, and they healed leprosy. And they went to some towns, and we know what happened is people rejected them. And so they shook off the dust from their sandals, and they moved on. You don't spend too much time on those people because the mission is too important. You go to people that are hungry for me. You go to people that are looking for me because they have needs. They're sick. They're hurting. They're hungry. Their marriages are falling apart. They're experiencing depression. They have anxiety. You know what they need? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you know how that happens? Me. So you go and you give them me. And they go out and they do it. And they come back, and Luke tells us in his account of this, this miracle that they're reporting to Jesus what happened, and then also that they got word that John the Baptist had his head cut off for talking about things that were true. And so they're grieving, and they're tired, and then comes this sea of people. Can you imagine being one of the 12? And you've been out, and I've been given and given and given and serving and doing People rejected me, and then I saw amazing stuff happen. I'm trying to tell Jesus, so I get more points than Peter gets, and all that stuff's going on in their hearts. And 
that you look out and you see more people coming, and that's not just like a few. Like if you've been to the RBC Center, see it's 19,000. Picture that. 15,000 people walking towards you. I don't know how they counted, because Matthew tells us there were kids there. You ever try to count kids? <laughs> Sit still, you know. He's over there now. You know, how did I count? I don't know, but they counted. And they knew, and they're coming towards him. And you know what Jesus saw? He saw people that he had compassion on. And John tells us these people, they're coming because they hear that he heals the sick. You don't think there were sick people in that crowd coming to get healed? And there are people that are coming, and they're looking for a word from God. They just something to fix their, ma- their marriage, something to help them know what direction to go, and they can't find a job, and there's all this stuff happening in their lives. And Jesus, he looks at them, he doesn't just feel sorry for them. That's not compassion. He feels for them. He feels their pain. That's compassion. And then it says exactly what he saw. The next part, Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that sounds like a very tender picture. Very pastoral, right? Grab them and hug them and make them feel better, give them a word. No, that's not what this means. In fact, the Jewish ear would hear what he saw was a bunch of people that had no direction. The picture of a sheep and shepherd was a picture of a leader. And these were like sheep that had no leader. They had no direction. And many of these people, they're just trying to make it through life. Because they're sick, and they just want to know how they're going to survive. Or are they, the taxation's so heavy, and they just want to know how they're going to pay the bills. Or maybe the kids are wearing them out, and they just want to get the kids to bed at night. That's like a success. Or just make it through the week, or make it to the next paycheck. And those types of people don't have any direction. How can you? You're just trying to survive. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, they're going to be people coming to your whole life. They've got no purpose. They've got no meaning. They've got no direction. All I can think about is their circumstances. And you see them like sheep without a shepherd. And so you point them to the good shepherd. And he leans over to his buddy, Philip. And why does he go to Philip? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the passage where they're located, they're right by Bethsaida, and Philip's from there. He leans over to his buddy, Philip, kind of nudges him. Hey, where can we buy bread? Where? Notice he doesn't say how. Notice he doesn't say what. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And so, you know, Philip's the hometown boy. And so you could look at it like he's saying... Where's the Walmart? Like if I just show up in Briar Creek and there's a bunch of people on the RBC Center, where's Walmart? We're going to buy bread for all these people. And Philip, he starts to calculate it. He must have actually counted all the people because he knows how many people are there and he knows how much money it's going to take. And so Philip, if you don't know Philip, he's an, he's an analytic thinker. He's probably an A-type personality. He's probably very driven. He's probably got a spreadsheet he's working on for this whole deal, right? He's popping in the formulas. All this stuff is happening. And then you look down to verse 7. Philip answered him, Mr. Calculator Head, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a single bite. That's 200 denarii. For us, eight months' wages. Just think about that and whatever you make. We're talking thousands, probably tens of thousands of dollars. And so what Philip says to him is this. There is no Walmart. If there was, they wouldn't have enough bread. If they did, we wouldn't have enough money. In other words, this can't happen. This is impossible. Jesus. But Jesus didn't ask that question, did he? He didn't say how. He didn't say what. He said where, where. Go back to the verse. Where shall we get bread? Do you know what he was teaching Philip? I'm the bread of life. I'm the answer. I'm the way. I'm the one you come to. Philip missed it. He didn't get it. But Philip got to be invited then. See, think about what Jesus could have done here. What Jesus could have done here? Seas of people are coming. Throngs of people. Multitudes. Whatever big word you want to use. There's all these people coming, 15,000 of them. He could have leaned over to Philip and been like, watch this. You know, food. 
It's like at the airport. Have you ever seen food? You know how they load up the airplanes and they'll have like all those prepackaged? You could have prepackaged actual good food, not like hard bread and nasty turkey sandwiches. You could have given them like good food out there. Or maybe you could have like a turkey buffet, like Thanksgiving, just long tables that they walk to. And when they get to the end, there's someone standing there with the Gospel of John. You know, they're hanging out or whatever's happening there. Eat turkey and stuffing and they don't know what to do with the cranberry. So everybody leaves it, but it's there, right? It's all that. He could have done all those things. But instead, he leans over to Philip and he invites Philip into the process. It's kind of like, if you think about our mission to worldwide evangelization, the redemption of all humanity, and that's what Jesus has sent us out to tell people about, think about what he could do. He could paint the gospel in the sky. John 3, 16, and this is how you play into it. And he could change the color of the sky so that you pay attention to. It's like purple or something one day. You go out there, get our attention. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your deeds before you do them. He made you. And so you think about what he could do. You could wake up tomorrow morning and on your mirror could be a note from God. Hello, fill in the blank your name that was born on this time at this exact second. And then it could list all of your sins that you've done. Here's all the sins that have separated you from me. And here's what I did about it. I sent my son Jesus Christ to take all those sins upon himself and also to experience my wrath because sin requires punishment. Sin requires payment, and he paid that on the cross for you. Now, what are you going to do? That's the gospel. He could share the gospel that way, but he doesn't. Do you know what he does? He says to his followers, where where are you going to point them? I've entrusted you. I've committed to you. Remember when we read that verse? I've committed to you my message. And you're a fragile vessel. In fact, the scripture calls us jars of clay. And you're broken. And it's in your weaknesses that I'm made known. And it's through you that I choose to send this stuff out. Just as I sent my son, so my son sends you. And this is your mission. Go make disciples. Seek and save the lost. That's how he chooses to do it. But we miss out unless we play a part in the process. And the problem is that many of us don't want to play a part. We assume someone else will do it. Pastors will do it. Missionaries will do it. Those people that really love Jesus, like the people that are like, they're like sold out, like sell everything, go to Zimbabwe or wherever it is they go. It's just those people, the people that really know the Bible, the people that teach the class, they'll do it like those people. And you know what that is? Psychologists call that bystander effect. It's where we assume someone else will take responsibility when there's something going on. And there's been all kinds of studies about this. And one time I saw a show on the Today Show where they actually took a small child, a seven-year-old little girl, they put her out on the street in a busy city in the street, seven years old, and she's standing there by herself, and then they hired an actor, a, a middle-aged man, a very large middle-aged man. They had hidden cameras around. And he would walk up and grab a hold of her, and then she would yell out, Stop! He's not my dad! Stop! He's not my dad! And people would walk right by. Like, literally, walk by them, next to them. Look, keep going. Go to the corner. People on their cell phone, walking by. People that are with their kids, keep going. Don't pay attention to that. You keep going. They cornered one woman afterwards, and they got her on camera. And they asked her, why did you walk by? And you know what she said? Well, you just assume someone else will do it. You just hope someone else will take responsibility. It's exactly what she said. The mom was in the van a few hundred feet away in a surveillance van watching this happen. Can you imagine how this broke mom's heart? It's her seven-year-old daughter that's out there. People just over and over. For hours, they replayed this over and over until eventually two guys did something. Ours, though, the bystander effect, we suffer from that in the church. 
Christians, we just assume other people will do it. A couple of weeks ago, September 30th, I preached a message on our mission. We were talking about how we don't exist just for fellowship. Otherwise, we go to heaven or praise or teaching or all that other stuff. And a couple come up to me after the service. In fact, it was really after the service. After second service, I'd already gone out to the 10X banner, talked to people, answered questions, came back in, said something to Pastor Jed, was coming back out the second time into the lobby, so almost no one's out there. And this woman comes walking up. She's by herself this time, and her eyes are kind of red. I think she's been crying probably, but I don't know for sure, but trying to be sensitive to those things. And, and she says that her husband's going to come back and they want to talk to me. You know what I thought? Oh, no. This is bad. Something happened in their marriage was my, my immediate thought. Something's bad here. And her husband comes in a few minutes later, and his first words are, we need to repent. I said, okay. I was like, we're ready. This is a great time. What's going on? And I've known them. They've been attending our church. There's a little debate between whether it was three years or five years. And so we've been attending the church, and he said for three years. She said for five. And so they had a little debate. And uh, he said, and we love what God's doing here. We love the messages every week. We love to see what God's doing and how he's changing people's lives. But we've just been watching we need to repent of our inactivity. And I said, all right, well, let's pray. We prayed a prayer of repentance. And they said, we, when you talk about reaching 10, we want to introduce 10 people to Jesus over the next 10 years. We want to be involved in that. Do you know what? They're not the only couple in this church that needs to repent of their inactivity, of being a fan and not a follower. Now, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, I'm not talking about you. You can't even be a fan because you don't know Jesus. But... There are other people that need to repent in this church and all around America. They'll sing the songs. They'll do the hand movements. They'll clap. Say the creeds. They want what's best for the team. If you give them a thing that they're supposed to vote for, challenge them to rally around the cause, they will cheer for it. There's a study for them to go to. They will go to the study. But you say, hey, come on in. Philip, he gets invited in. Where, where, where do they get this? Where are they going to get the bread? Where are we going to come up with this, Philip? I skipped a verse when I read it the second time. I read you verse 5. I read you verse 7. Did you read verse 6? There's a reason why he did this. He asked this only to test him. And we know that God tests our faith. We see it with Abraham. His faith was tested. We see it with, uh, in James. We see how you get tested through suffering. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already had a plan. He was going to accomplish his mission, but he invites Philip to be part of it. And he's testing his faith because for the rest of his life, Philip is going to be tested with people that are going to come to him. Is he going to know where to take them? Is he going to try and solve the problem on his calculator with his spreadsheets, with his bank account, with his jobs, with his skills, with his wiring? Or is he going to take them to Jesus? It's a test. And think about where we're at as a church. And we're about to move into our, our first ever facility, first ever permanent facility as a church. But in order to do that, we need to raise $4 million. That's a big deal for us. It might not be a big deal for some churches. It might not be a big deal for certain even individuals. But for us as a church, we're not a huge church. That's a big deal for us. And we've been told by our consultant, our consultant told us, if you try to raise money, you'll raise somewhere between one and a half, $1.7 million. That's with people like cutting their budget, giving sacrificially, above and beyond their tithing, all that stuff. You raise one and a half to 1.7. We're asking God to raise $4 million. That's going to mean a journey for people. That's going to mean prayer. You know what I mean? God's going to have to speak to you and tell you what it is you're supposed to give. That means some people are going to have to cash in you know, bank accounts. Some people are going to have to cash in retirement funds. All that stuff is going to have to happen. God's going to have to do that. And we invite everybody in on that process. And I think about it from our perspective. And you know what I think? God, we're trying to do something for you. We believe we're doing what you called us to do. And you look at the building we're building. It's not a monument to us. I mean, it's a simple building. 
And it's just there to facilitate the life change that we know that you want to see. You say it in the scriptures. So why don't you just give us $4 million? I mean, he owns a cattle on a thousand hill, right? If you're not familiar with the scriptures, he created this whole place. So $4 million bucks is not a big deal to him. And so I literally say, why don't you just give us $4 million? Like, I'm cool with that right now. <laughs> Go ahead. But he doesn't do that. And I think about it from our perspective like that, but then you try to think about it from his perspective as our father. And the best analogy I can come up with is with my kids. And I imagine if my four-year-old or my six-year-old daughter came to me and she said, Dad, I want to do something for God and whatever it is. And she said, but it's going to take $4. That's a lot of money to her. Do you know what to me? $4, no big deal. I hand her four bucks, no problem. But if I just hand her $4, what am I robbing her of? What process, what journey is she going to go on? What prayers is she going to pray that's going to draw her closer? And what's going to happen with her and her getting resourceful? She can draw pictures. Maybe she'll draw some pictures and sell the pictures or or maybe a lemonade stand or whatever it is she's going to do. And what is she going to do when she gets the first dollar? She's 25% of the way there, right? Is she going to be faithful and give 10 cents of it away and now she only has 90 cents? That's tough. What's going to happen for her? But if I just hand her four bucks, I'd cheat the process. And so what's God doing with us? He's testing our faith. So, you know, he invites us in. We're all invited into the process. Philip, you're invited. Hey, where? 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 The answer is not how much. The answer is not what. The, answer, the question is, where? So the answer is me. I'm the bread of life. And I could just do this. I already know what I'm going to do. I could just do this. But I invite you to take a part in the process. Because participation requires that we take a part. Participation also requires that we offer whatever we have. We need to make whatever we have available. That's our second point. Participation requires we make whatever we have available. And you see that's what happens in this passage of Scripture. So whatever we have, we make it available, kind of like in Isaiah, when Isaiah says, here I am, you send me. It's total surrender. You take me. You use me. Whatever it is I bring to the table, my time, my talent, exactly where I live and I move and I have my being, how you've created me from the beginning of the world as your creation, your workmanship, your work of art, here it is, all of it, everything I am, everything I have, fill me up, pour me out, do whatever you want with me. Send me somewhere, take stuff from me, do what I think is good, do what I think is bad, it's all according to your plan and I trust you. Whatever I have, here it is, it's available. There's a little boy in the story who did that. He doesn't even get named. So much for popularity for him, right? And then you look at this other disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Your brother's more popular than you, so we'll just always call you that. How about that? Andrew, little brother. But we learn some stuff about Andrew if you look at him through the scriptures. He seems to be an extrovert. He's continually bringing people to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. He probably goes out and he works the crowd. 15,000 people. I don't know how many he talked to, but can you imagine Andrew working the crowd? Hey, what's going on? Glad you came to the party today. Got any food on you? No? Okay, next person. Next one. Hey, is that a water bottle? No water bottle. All right, glad you're here. Keeps going around. How many people did he talk to? Out of the 15,000. And he comes up to Jesus. He says, I found this one little boy, and he's got a lunch. Poor little kid. Little cakes he's got here. It's basically uncrustables and tuna fish is what this kid's bringing to the table. Look at what he's got. Verse 8, another of his disciples, he wasn't even called. It was Philip that he specifically nudged and said, where, where? Andrew overheard the conversation. He decides to go out and be resourceful. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. They'd be pickled little fish. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers there. And so we know that if you caught fish, you ate them right away. 
except for little sardine-type fish. And these little cakes, about the size of a Twinkie, we know this kid's poor. And he brings it, but then he says this, but how far will they go among so many? I wonder, when you look at that sea of people, see, Andrew, he's fully aware of the little boy and what he has and how many people and what the need is. And when he's out there with all those people, I've thought to myself, there wasn't somebody else that had food? Like, realistically, think about this. 15,000 people, there wasn't a business guy who didn't eat his lunch yet, had his briefcase? Wasn't like some triathlon person out there? <laughs> Granola bars in the back, I pull them out. They weren't there? Wasn't a mom with a diaper bag? You ever seen one of those diaper bags? You can feed a small village out of a diaper bag, okay? <laughs> There, there, there wasn't one diaper bag in the whole crowd? Apparently not. At least not of the people that Andrew talked to. Nobody was volunteering. And there's this one boy, and he's got this little lunch, and then Andrew comes, and I love exactly how Andrew does this. The humility he comes with, but that he's willing to offer. You think about what Andrew does here. He's got about three options. He finds the little boy, and he could be proud that while you're over here doing nothing, Philip, at least I've got something I'm bringing to the table. He could come and go, Jesus, look what I got. Here, I'm bringing something to the table. Or he could be proud, and the boy comes up with his lunch, and he says, that's nice, kid, but that's not going to cut it, and send him on his way. Or he could come like he does, and he could say, here's, here's what we have. I used my abilities and my talents, and I found this kid, and he's willing to offer what he has. And he makes whatever he has available. And he realizes it's not much. And he says the statement, but how far will it go among so many? Because I see the need and I realize it, but I'm going to just give you what I have. And I'm going to come to you with what I have and you do what you do. And I'll make available my resources, my talents, my time, all that stuff. And you do what you do. But how far will it go among so many? And we kind of have those same responses too, right? Like, sometimes it'll be like, what am, what am I going to do? And so we just don't do anything. We can brush the kid off. Or it's because we do something. It's like, well, look at what I'm doing. Look at that. But what a spirit to come and say, look, I don't have much, but whatever it is, it's yours. I'm going to make what I have available. You ever feel overwhelmed by a problem? You look at the sea of people. You look at all the stuff that's happening. And you think, well, what am I going to do? That's like saying to God, when you make yourself available for it, it's like saying, but what, what, what am I among so many? What am I going to do? What is this? You ever watch the news and just turn it off because it's so overwhelming? I've done that. See the stuff that's going on in the Middle East? It's like, what am I? I'm just some guy in North Carolina. What am I going to do? And I just turn it off. Do you ever hear problems? I'll quote stats every once in a while. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the stats? About half the world lives on less than $2.5 a day. You ever think, yeah, but what am I going to do? Like, that's a lot of people. Half the world, that's over, like over 3 billion people. But what do I have to offer among so many? Isn't that the question? But what do I have to offer? But here it is. It's all yours. I read a stat this week. 50 million people will not vote in this election that could have voted because they were murdered and abortions since 1973. But what am, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm just a guy in North Carolina. What am I going to do? What, what, what do I? There's so many problems. 27 million slaves in the world today. That's more than ever in human history. That's people that are being bought and sold as objects for labor and sex. 27 million. What, what are we going to do? Are we going to play our part? What, what can I do among so many? Some people aren't even aware of the issues. I emailed 
both our president and the president of uh, the president elect through the International Justice Ministries. You can do the same thing, IJM.org, and you can look it up, and they'll show you. They already got the email written. Send it to them. You know what they sent me back? Stuff about health care. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people. We're talking about people that are being bought and sold in slavery. I wrote them back and said, uh, that wasn't what I was talking about. Got another email. <laughs> Sorry, wrong format letter. Do we even care? What, what am I going to do among so many? What are you going to do? Will you make available what you have, what you are? 22,000 kids die every day because they don't have food. And they have things like diarrhea, stuff that we can prevent. But what are we going to do? Something. That's what this little boy was at. I'm just, here's what I have. And Andrew comes. He says, look, I'll use my skills and I'll go out. I'll talk to people. I'm always trying to bring people to you. That's my mission. And so what is it among all these people, though? And for some of you, it might get more personal. It might be your marriage. And you think about all the problems that are in your marriage. And you think, well, what am I going to do? I can't fix it. The other person won't listen. And they don't want to fix it. And there's been so many hurts. There's been so many fights. There's been so many disagreements. What am I going to do with my time? And how am I going to pray? You know, what do you want to do in me through this process? And we think we don't have much to offer. And you look at the scriptures, and I challenge you to study this yourself. God's in the business of taking small stuff and doing big things with it. And you think about the beginning of humanity, out of dust, he creates us. Out of, the earth was out of nothing, by the way, so that's about as small as you can get. Nothing. He speaks, it's there. And then you follow through the scriptures and you see these different things. He kills a giant with a pebble. Interesting. You look at Elijah, his prophet, and how he feeds him through a poor widow and her son that were going to go home and die because they didn't have enough food to eat. They had less than a meal for two people. He feeds all three of them continually. He feeds them through a raven. You look at what ends up happening in the New Testament, and he takes these five loaves, little barley cakes, two little fish, uncrustables with tuna fish spread on top of them to help it go down. That's essentially what we have here. And he feeds 5,000 people. But the greatest illustration of it is when he redeems all of mankind through a baby. I think about God came as a baby with two peasant parents in a manger. The fragileness of a baby, the dependence of a baby. And through that child, you take upon your sins and all the sins of humanity and the full wrath of God because wrath has to be poured out on sin. Sin has to be paid for and he pays for it for us. That's a big thing that started pretty small. I think about here what he does with these five loaves and these two fish and you think, what are you going to do? Imagine if he can do this with five loaves and two fish, what he can do with your life. See, that's what we're called to. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to be a living sacrifice consecrated for God. Imagine if you actually committed your whole life to him and surrendered everything to him and really did say, fill me up, pour me out, take me, here I am, send me, you do whatever you want with me every day. You do whatever it takes in me. Remember that one? You do whatever it takes in me to do a work through me, whatever that is, and I'm open to all of it by faith, by faith, without faith, it's impossible. Do you see how this works? Can you imagine what God could do through your life, a whole life? This is just a lunch. D.L. Moody once said, it's impacted my life since the time I heard it. I've prayed this many times. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a person, a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Let me say it in a little bit shorter language. The world's yet to see somebody who would give their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole soul, their whole life to, to God. And then I've heard that D.L. Moody said to follow that up, may I be that man? Let me be that person. And I just ask you, why aren't you that woman? Why aren't you that man? Why am I not? What's holding us back? What's stopping us? 
And for some of us, as, as we think, we don't have much to offer, what am I going to do? I read a, from the journal of Elizabeth Elliot. For those of you who don't know Elizabeth Elliot, she lost her husband. She, he was murdered by the very people they were trying to share the love of Christ with. And she's talking about this passage of scripture. And she says, sometimes all you have to offer is a broken heart. Offer a broken heart. You bring whatever you have. And you know what? Whatever he wants to do with it, it's not even our business. It's his. Because he's the one that's in the business of doing what he does. So we take what we have and we offer it to him and he does what he does. And you know what? That day what ends up happening is he feeds that whole crowd, all 15,000 people. Not only them, but the disciples. And the disciples go around. And you can read on in this passage. It's a great story. They pick up 12 baskets full of food when they're done. There's more bread when they're done than there was before they started. How about that? Figure that one out in your spreadsheet, Philip. <laughs> pretty amazing miracle all those people eat it's great it's a feel-good story too isn't it like if we just leave here right now everybody could be encouraged and be great let me talk about something we never talk about with this story they were all hungry tomorrow all those people 24 hours later still needed food it was great that they ate i'm not against what happened it's better that they ate than they didn't eat but the next day they were still hungry In fact, you know what's great about this passage? And you can read it on your own. Verses 16 through 71 explains the feeding of the 5,000. You have to read that on your own, though, to see what happens because Jesus didn't do this for the sake of the crowd. And that's what oftentimes we walk away and we miss. You look at the structure of the Gospel of John, and what's happening here is now Jesus is focusing on his 12 disciples, and he's teaching them. Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be many times throughout the rest of your life where people are going to come to you like sheep without a shepherd, they're directionless. Where, where, where will you send them? Where will you put them? Where will you send them? What will you do with those people? You send them to me because I am the bread of life. You read verses 16 through 71. That's what Jesus teaches. The crowd finds them the next day. They want them to do it again. Bring manna down from heaven. That's what happened with Moses, right? There's a bunch of pictures here of what happened in the Exodus. There's a little miracle that's kind of squished in between the explanation of the feeding of the 5,000. It's him walking on water. (laughs) So what happened in Exodus? Uh, Bread came from heaven. God feeds people. He's the God of the sea, parts of the Red Sea. And so Jesus is showing, I fulfill all that stuff. I am the bread of life. And there's people that are thinking about the Passover and they're thinking about this stuff. Jesus is doing all this stuff for a reason. He's very intentional. And then he says something to shock them that no Jew would ever say. He says, you eat my flesh, you drink my blood. If you want to be part of me, you've got to be all in. That's what he's saying. It takes everything that you have, everything that you are. You find satisfaction in me. That's what he's telling them, that I'm the source, that I am the true bread of life, and so you come to me for your satisfaction. And do you know what it says in John chapter 6 towards the end? That that day, many disciples, don't miss that word, Not many people in a crowd, not many of the multitude, not many of the throngs, many disciples that day, they left. Why? Because they were fans. And he turns to the 12, because it's really all about the 12 at this point of his ministry. And he turns to the 12. And in verse 67 of John chapter 6, he says this. You don't want to leave too, do you? Can you hear this? The tone that he probably has? In the Greek, it assumes a negative response. You don't want to leave two, do you? He asked the 12. And we learn that there's one of them that does, and that day is a turning point for him. There's one of them that will turn, but Peter speaks up on behalf of the group. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? We don't have this all figured out. He doesn't understand the crucifixion. He doesn't understand the resurrection, but he knows this is, this is our Lord. This is our master. To whom shall we go? You, if you really are the bread of life, if you really do satisfy, then what else are we going to do? He gets an A on the quiz. You are the way. You're the bread of life. You are the truth. You are the only one we can turn to. 
And you're the one we got to point everybody else to. He gets it. But there's a difference between these 11 guys, 12 guys, and the rest of the crowd. And they all leave. Do you know what you see the primary difference is? All the rest of those people were fans. They all benefited from the miracle that day. 15,000 people ate. But there were a few guys that got to participate. And they moved from being a fan to a follower. It takes participation. So what will you be, fan or follower? That's the question. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us so much that you'd send your son Jesus Christ to die for us. I pray, Father, if there are any here that need to know your son Jesus Christ today, that they would move from non-belief to belief today, that they would move from no faith to faith today, that they would place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. If you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, will you do that right now? If not, what would stop you from doing that? Will you talk to somebody about that? We'll have a response team down here after the service. But if you want to place your faith in Jesus right now, will you just pray this prayer, acknowledging your sin and asking Jesus to be your Savior? Just pray this, Father God, I know you know me, and you know all my sins, and they've separated me from you. I want to confess my sin to you today. And I believe your son Jesus died for those sins, and I want to receive his forgiveness. I want to receive your son Jesus as Savior right now. And today I ask Jesus to be my Savior. And Father, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you, but there's something we won't surrender to you. Maybe it's a sin. I pray that you'd convict and break hearts and make people miserable with sin. And maybe it's uh, uh, just something they think that they've got to have control and so they can't release their time or they can't release their money or they can't release their talents or whatever it is. Father, will you draw them, attractively draw them to yourself? And Father, I pray for all of us that you'd empty us out, fill us up with your spirit, fill us up, pour us out, and keep doing that over and over and over again and have us impact far more than 10 people in the next 10 years. Father God, we don't want to be fans. We want to be in the game. Please use us. In Jesus' name I pray.